and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you another look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how are you holding up over there? We're holding, dog. We're holding. Excited to jump into the greatest rapper alive, the greatest <laughs> writer of the 21st century, Sai the Prince. Yeah, uh, he, he tweeted last week that he's dropping, uh, I think, a few EPs, right? In the coming weeks, he's got a few uh, weeks coming we, out. We got this EP, and he says an album of the same name is coming soon. So he says, Sai Hi, back, back again. And uh, proclaimed himself to be the uh, greatest rapper alive, which uh, was a surprise to me. But maybe he'll maybe he'll surprise me. We're going to be talking about him in just a second, as well as a few other artists and a couple TV shows that started and wrapped up. So hit that subscribe on YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. And a five-star rating on Spotify, which actually I, don't, I haven't even seen that on Spotify. They might have taken that feature away. I don't know. I don't update my apps, so... Perhaps they did take it away. Last I checked, it was still there. Well, if you can give a five star, you should do that. But yeah, why don't we jump in to Sci High, the Prince, who dropped EGOT, the EP, this past week. And Sci High, you know, I guess is an artist that we're aware of pretty much as a Kanye art, like in the Kanye circle, right? right? But not someone that we really talk about a lot. I think his last, like, real album was five years ago. Um, so not, not doing a lot of his own stuff, but seems to be kind of stepping into the limelight here. What'd you think of EGOT the EP? Did it impress you? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I was necessarily impressed, but I wasn't disappointed either. That debut album you referenced, No Dope on Sundays, the long awaited debut album from Sci High back in 2017, kind of the same feeling. It's like, yeah, a lot of the trademarks of his rapping ability when you've heard him has been yeah this guy's a really technical guy punchline heavy pretty witty old school rapper not too bad i mean most people i think most famously know him from his few like like true features on kanye projects so appalled on dark twisted fantasy and then probably less famously the morning on cruel summer those are like and then, and then he was on some of the good friday songs as well like christmas in harlem but i mean it's not like he was super well known for his huge mixtape around the 2010s. And I think curiosity more than anything else was what drove interest in that debut album back when it came out several years ago. And that's honestly where I'm at again with this EGOT EP and his EGOT album he says is coming out this year. It's just curiosity just to see what what is it going to be. Because I think his abilities and his collaborations towards others, namely Kanye, speak for themselves and uh, suggest a high a high standard. But uh, and, and Sai High, I think, is kind of a bit more than just like someone's ghostwriter or someone's writer who also does their own thing. You know, like he's clearly not partisan Fontaine. He's not Quentin Miller. He's he's still a viable artist. I mean, he did have like seven mixtapes before that album. But, it, you know, it just never really happened for him due to various reasons, including label troubles. But nonetheless, I still think it, it's pretty solid offering, this four-track EP. But by the nature of its existence, it's short and sweet. You know, it, it, you say short, but when you hear four songs, you think maybe it's, it'd be like 10 minutes, 12 minutes, something like that. No, we get full tracks. Here. This almost feels a bit like a throwback in a sense. Mm -hmm. I think that makes sense for... You know how long Sai has been the great Sai has been the game in the era that he comes from. These are 
fully formed songs. And I, I actually liked probably three of the four of them. Uh, I think the first two, Extra and Help Me God, were the clear standouts. Mm-hmm. Slide, I also liked. Tears, I was ready to skip through by the end. But overall, I think if we're getting three of the four really standing out on an EP, that, that's a good first showing for, uh, you know, a, a wetting the whistle for the album to come. Did you have the same feeling? I did exactly. I think that's that's a great way to put it. For me, the, the biggest highlight of them all would be Help Me God, yeah. which has, I think, really awesome production featuring this, this consistent background, choiry vocals. But the bars themselves from Sci High, which is why people listen to him, just super punchline heavy, lots of lots of references. It's just really fun. Uh, you know, the Black Kennedy, Jackie O, Grassy Knoll line stood mm-hmm. out to me. I also at least made my ears perk up. I don't know if it makes sense, but he talked about Jesus dying at 33, but he's not yeah, dead, so line. is Nipsey Hussle still alive? I was like, hmm, all right, sure. Yeah. It, it <laughs> but, made, made me like kind of just look off in the distance like what like but it at least caught my attention for sure yeah and, and i think just in general it's a good encapsulation of like what kind of rapper he is like if you remember um after life of pablo came out it must have been over a year after it came out sahai put out a video of him in his car driving rapping along to his demo verse of father's touch my hands part one yes. and you listen to that verse and you're like hmm maybe that was just a demo or a reference but it, you know what? It makes sense why it wasn't on Life of Pablo because Saha would have waxed Kanye with those bars. <laughs> like it was, it was dense lyrical shit, you know, yeah. and it sounded awesome on that very famous popular beat that we all know. That's the kind of guy he is. So I really hope that album is coming soon because uh, I would love him to get more flowers as a performer himself because he's so talented. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I, I think that. This at least made me excited to get his next album, which hopefully we'll get very soon. And uh, we'll be adding Help Me God to our Nostalgia Best of 2022 playlist. So check that out on Spotify. But why don't we keep it moving forward to uh, another artist uh, connected to Kanye, Vori, who just dropped his third project, third, or third full-length album project, Lost Souls. Uh, I don't know if this is... Debut album, yes. Yeah, debut album, I guess. Everything else was a tape. um, Lost Souls, do you know, last time we heard Vori, at least last time I think we talked about him on the podcast, would have been on Donda. And as someone that has had a few tapes in the past, kind of just came up through Donda, obviously I think we were excited to see what he could bring. I I also think his showings on some of the Donda songs really stood out. You know, like, I thought, um, No no Child Left Behind. And No Child Left Behind. Yep. I think he also might have contributed to one other, but um, he, he, has, he, he was on Donda 2 on that song, uh, Lord Lift Me Up, which is really just a solo Vori track on the, the Donda 2 we heard, you know, a few months <laughs> Don, ago. Donda 2, an album I do not ever want to go back to. Uh, but yeah, you know, g- good for Vori getting on that. Did you feel like Lost Souls is like going to be a breakout project mm. for him? Yeah, I think that's the key question here. And it's funny, I actually was not aware of this when Donna came out, but Vori, you you would be forgiven if you thought Vori, oh, new good music signee in the orbit of Kanye, following the footsteps of many other people that worked with him and signed to him. No, Vori's actually signed to Meek Mill. He signed the Dream Chasers. Curveball there. Anyway, 
I honestly like this a lot more than I thought I would. It's a long record. It's too long. It's got bloat in it. Just get that out of the way. But I do think Vori's performer uh, performance performances his his voice as like a guy in the male R and B slash melodic hip hop lane. I actually like really enjoy his voice, and I think he stands out more than say someone on this alongside him, like Young Blue. I think he's I think he's a bit a, a bit more interesting than some of his contemporaries along these lines. So there was more songs that I really enjoyed than I expected to, because I also wasn't super blown away by his Donda stuff, to be honest. I know some people were. He was definitely a, a name people were remembering from Donda, but I wasn't necessarily wowed by him. But, you know, in terms of like the male R&B stuff that we get these days, I actually thought there was there was some cool stuff here. So not a perfect album, but I did like more than I thought I would. It's a um, it's definitely a, like a first album. You know, <laughs> I think that, like you said, there's a lot of bloat on here. Um, I definitely found myself just feeling kind of bored at times. I, I don't I think by the end, there's not a ton of variation. Actually, there's it's like a second, uh, second or third song near the end. Um, might be Project Baby that comes right after this interlude that really lulls you to sleep. That's just like such a welcome shot of energy to it. Because I, re- I feel like a lot of this feels a bit sleepy at times. Um, but I definitely think there's some some positive takeaways here for Vori. And I expect this to propel him to get more opportunities and to uh, probably put out some better stuff in the future. So I guess I'll say it wasn't my favorite. And also that listening to Psy High right after, I just was like, oh, this is someone who's been in the game a long time versus someone who's rather new and kind of still finding their voice. Uh, a, a funny juxtaposition, I would say. But um, <laughs> I think there's definitely uh, definitely some good takeaways. So tell me what you liked about it, because you said you were a little impressed. Uh, yeah, so I think it's just it's just a few songs, really. I don't think there's anything to really write home about with this sequence here. And again, it, it's a long album, but just if you if you take away a few of these songs, I think track one, Lost Souls, stands out. Mind Games as well. Just I think just like the performance that Vori brings, he comes across as a, like very charismatic. Honestly, I really enjoy that. I think um, it, it fits well with you know pretty traditional trap beat production, but I. I I think it sounds pretty nice. Uh, Do Not Disturb in particular, which I believe was the first or second single, the catchiness of the Vori hook, I think, really stands out. And I kind of think that it showcases why like, we're seeing him pop up on new features like he was on the 5EO record. I would not be shocked that a Vori hook, a Vori chorus, is a, more common in the future for that reason, just because it, it just has a catchiness to it. And then, kind of unexpectedly, I didn't think I would be in this position, but Nav like kind of spazzed on "Do Not Disturb." <laughs> not I'm not a Nav guy at all, but I'm barely thirty, but I made a mil thirty times. I was like, "Oh damn, Nav's <laughs> showing out over here." How about that? Yeah, no, I agree. I think "Do Not Disturb" was one of the highlights. I also liked "Mind Games," like you said, and um, yeah, "Project Baby" near the end really stood <laughs> out. I think the production of it just is so different than pretty much everything else you get you know those horns come in and it really just perks up and i think that he's doing a little bit more rapping than like the melodic yes. singing this on it and that really stands out too the energy is just needed in this so um yeah you know i think i think you said it well his he has really good performances on this i just think this probably could have been a 25 minute album rather than 48 so any other thoughts or are you ready to 
move off Fori onto another Kanye protege, or at least someone in his sphere, 070 Shake, who dropped You Can't Kill Me, her second album, following up Modus Vivendi from 2020, an album that we both really liked and were impressed mm. by. I think it felt like Shake is so singular, obviously, comes on the scene off of those those recordings in Wyoming. Uh, mm-hmm. Ghost Town. Uh, yeah, Ghost Town of her vocals and that are so haunting and just really steal the show. And you got a couple of, I think, really memorable tracks off Moses Vivandi. So I guess, I think the question becomes, you can't kill me. Does this keep that upward propulsion for Shake or did this feel a bit like a step back for you? I definitely didn't like it as much as Modus Vivendi. That's that's for darn sure. I just didn't find this one nearly as interesting. It's not for a lack of trying. I think Shake's performance and what she does to her voice with autotune and uh, you know variations of production that's all still here. But I just don't know if the songs themselves really came together in the same way as they did in Modus Vivendi. Like. Modus Vivendi with Guilty Conscience and, and The Pines. There were, there was some catchy stuff on there that was still reminiscent of Ghost Town, but just made you want to listen to it again. I don't know if... I, I don't think I really loved any songs on here. There's some songs that are good and, and interesting, but uh, just wasn't really what I was looking for, which is a bit disappointing because, again, I love the first album so much. Yeah, I think I think I had a similar takeaway. Although I think there is like a nice stretch in the middle of some really memorable um, songs. You know, especially "A Skin and Bones" is probably the the standout track to me. The, the hook on that is so catchy, and this is pretty much all Shake. You know, she only really has one credited um, guest on this, Christine and the Queens, on another song that I thought was pretty good. At least the production, it was really interesting and i thought um probably a track i want to go back and listen to a few more times body but yeah you know it's, it's interesting because i think about how high a song like guilty guilty conscience just feels like it scores and it just feels like it like takes you into this like new space and this just felt very much kind of like down the middle in terms of energy and i just did not expect to get that from from uh, a shake album and so i i similarly was left feeling a little bit disappointed but overall i still think there's a few uh a few songs that are worthy of, of acknowledging did any stand out to you i'm with you on skin and bones which i believe is one of the singles first few singles that the way that song builds in general and her performance builds on top of it really really cool uh I mean, yeah, then there's some, like, I just have, like, some notes, like, Come Back Home, the the synths on that, I felt were really nice, and also particularly, like, the use of autotune as heavily as it's used on that one from Shake, I think, really works. You know, she's an artist that uses autotune and voice modulation very consistently, but also at different levels, so it is a bit noticeable when it's, like, super autotune heavy, almost, like, Daft Punk reminiscent or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, that was pretty cool. And then, uh, you know, Vibrations is one where it's like, I don't know if the, her lyrics were necessarily uh, wowing me, but there's just some like wild synth production on this, on, on that song, you know, so it's at least interesting to listen to. And it turns out this this whole album was mixed and mastered by uh, Mike Dean, who got, you know, was hmm. a good music release at, at the end of the day. Yeah. 
I, I agree. I think you highlighted a couple, you know, um, on uh, Come Back Home, that, like, piano start, and then the, like, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, the, like, strings that come in there. It feels almost, like, James Bond-like. Like, <laughs> like she was going for her uh, James Bond uh, theme song type move here. But, yeah, then those synths come in. It's, like, a really interesting move and really switches the song up. I think that, that my favorite run of songs in the middle is probably from Skin and Bones through Cocoon. Um, Blue Velvet has like a really interesting uh, like drum beat to it. Um, it almost kind of reminds me of LCD Sound System. Um, the I'm forgetting the name of the track at the moment. I'm going to look it up. But um, from their most recent uh, album, American Dream, um, where it's just like the whole first like three minutes of the song are just the drums kind of like tuned out. And it really just kind of steals it. Um, How Do You Sleep was the name of the track. So that one really stood out to me. Um, and then Cocoon, I thought, was a- another highlight from the album. But overall, I mean, that like stretch in the middle was nice. But everything in the beginning, like Web and Invited and History, I guess History wasn't too bad. I think that there's a good vocal performance from Shake there. But it just didn't catch me the same way. Mm-hmm. And it really, you know, just kind of makes me wonder if Shake is going to kind of continue to explore this realm if she feels like such a wild card you know like it's hard to like pinpoint what's next for her but i just don't i think i want something a little bit more like upbeat from her i'm not sure exactly how to frame exactly what i'm looking for but um still very talented and i apparently she's partners with kalani which i was not aware of so seems to be a new development but good for them i support support their relationship and their love I would I would love to hear them do a song together. Uh, I would fully support that. So, and I also support their their relationship. They seem like a cool uh, celebrity duo. So, we're gonna add a track from Shake to our now Nostalgia Best of playlist. But let's keep moving to Post Malone, Twelve Carat Toothache, the newest track from uh, pop mega superstar Post Malone. Mm. Man. <laughs> When Post Malone first like started, if, if you had told me this is like w- what he was going to become, yeah. how big he's going to become, I would have called you a liar. I can't believe this guy is this famous. When you heard White Iverson, you weren't thinking that that guy would release an <laughs> album that was the seventh best-selling album of 2019 and also the sixth best-selling album of 2020. You didn't think you, that when you listened <laughs> to White Iverson? I, I, I can't imagine anyone did, right? I mean, he is just an absolute, like, like I said, megastar. And yeah, it's crazy. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot to like about him in terms of his like persona. It's like he seems like a really likable guy and like just kind of fun. And he seems kind of like himself. Um, He's just so someone you want to have a beer with. Yeah, I'd vote you know, for him. I was going mean, to That's gonna kind say, of the vibe, right? It definitely is like uh, he's the kind of guy that if he walked into your party, you would like give like look at him at first and be like, oh, what's up with this guy? And then he would like, you know, crack a beer and do something funny. And you'd be like, oh, okay, this guy's pretty cool. Like, I'm, I'm down with that. But does he make good music, Dave? <laughs> Post Malone make good music. And that laugh tells me that you probably don't don't think so. Well, well, as you said, he makes popular music. Hollywood's Bleeding, the last record, came out in fall 2019. Had the pleasure of listening to that album in Budapest. Uh, yeah. 
uh, it was definitely make, made made for an interesting stroll. But uh, somehow, against all odds, he's just so so popular. Like he's tied with Bieber for having the most songs in the top 100 most streamed songs on Spotify with six apiece. Crazy rock star, the number four most streamed song on Spotify, over two billion streams. Like he's just flower only a hundred million streams behind it. Yeah, Sunflower's number seven. He's the only one with two in the top ten. And Circles, which was the big track from uh, Hollywood's Bleeding, which got a record and song of the year nomination, is like number 30. He just has done some huge numbers. He's such a huge radio presence, such a huge playlist presence. And yet, I've been consistent with this because we've reviewed his last two records. I really don't think there's a whole lot going on with Post Malone's music. And to a lot of people, that's the appeal. They love this shit, you know? But to me, I, I'm just very rarely impressed. And I feel like he goes in a deeper route sometimes and just never lands. When he does the more lighter fare, uh, like Congratulations with Quavo or Wow, you know, which is basically a rap song. Like, I, I, I like that stuff. That stuff's fun. But I'm not a circles guy. Like, I, I'm just kind of tired of Post Malone telling me how sad he is because he just can't tell me in a way he hasn't already told me. Like, we're really running on fumes with this shit, I feel like. However, I'd say 12 Carat Toothache at least is a bit more interesting and inviting on the production side of things. Even if Post Malone himself, I think, is still kind of doing what he's always been doing. Or at least he's been doing the last few years, which is a complete... Uh, pivot towards pop music and a de- completely de- departing hip-hop for good yeah <laughs> it's it's funny because i just i just did not find myself really digging a lot of this um I, I i agree i think when he goes lighter um i definitely find it more palatable something i can kind of just vibe with um but there's a, a a lot of times when i just really can't get into it and you know, it's hard. A, a lot of these songs, like Cooped Up with Roddy Rich, is one of the, the standouts from this. I think it might have been a single. And it was, yeah. It just does just not... It's hard for me to like really sit with this and be like, oh, these are super relatable lyrics. Like, you know, <laughs> listening to a guy who, like you said, is just so... Uh, like, he just makes music people, I guess, want to play over and over again. Makes has a lot of money. Doing really well for himself is, you know, he's kind of in a he's had a couple of times where he's in movies and like guest appearances and stuff so like he is just an absolute star and he's talking about like oh i'm gonna burn it all down and start you yeah. know build up this this lemon tree again because you know I, I i got the shit end of the stick in life it's like oh, it's really hard to like really like relate to that bro because like you know, there's a lot of people with a lot who are a lot worse off than this so uh yeah that that like beginning like reputation cooped up lemon tree was like really tough for me, it gets a little bit better once you get a couple of the features, like Doja coming in, I think, is like a, a breath of fresh air to this album. <laughs> she's just so damn good right now, dude. What a great she's, feature. She's on a heater. She's absolutely unbelievable. Um, I'm trying to think. He does a song with Fleet Foxes, which is just like super unexpected, and I don't know why Fleet Foxes did this. Uh, like, the just, Cash, brother. I guess. Like, they just never <laughs> struck me as that kind of band either. Right. Um but then another standout was uh, the feature from the weekend on one right now. I mean, yeah. also another artist who every time he jumps on a track at the moment it just crushes it. So, funny enough, the one right now with the weekend came out last fall, 
I think it was. Yeah. It, it's been out several months, and it wasn't actually as big a hit as probably people would have expected. I actually think it's pretty solid because it feels a bit more like a what the weekend's been up to than what Post Malone's been up to, and to me, that's more appealing. But I guess to Post Malone's fans, that that wasn't more appealing. I don't know what to say. Um, yeah, I'm I'm just really tired of the sad shit, honestly. And like clearly, when you have a song like Circles get absolutely rapidly consumed for two years almost and get all get get Grammy nominations, like sure, you're gonna keep sticking to that lane. But it's just weird for me because he says that like the pandemic and being being cooped up, you know. Uh, was like the focus of this record and he made this record in Malibu but it's like I don't know man like you were also hella sad on Hollywood's Bleeding which you made before <laughs> the pandemic so like what the fuck changed I don't get it I, I, I just don't get it like he, he 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 seems to be so having such a good time and and he has all all these famous friends that love being around him and and I'm sure I'm sure he is a great time he's really fun and yet he he couldn't be any anything farther from it as you said when it comes to his actual music and yeah. it's just very strange. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. One of my favorite, like, songs from him, I, I guess I like the ones that, like I said, you can just vibe to. I like his cover of Only Wanna Be With You they did for Pokemon, was it Pokemon 25? And yeah. I, I think that that's actually, like, a fun performance. He adds, like, his own twist to the song and sound. And he kind of fits that, like, like Hootie and the Blowfish type vibe pretty well. Mm. And, like, he could totally just be kind of making music similar to that i mean obviously hootie is country but if you put the like pop auto-tune spin to it you can be making these upbeat songs that just are catchy and fun and like bubblegum but he really wants to go for this like yeah introspective stuff and i just don't know if he does it super well or in a way that really makes sense um right but i think i think when he gets a collaborator he actually had gives better performances like i think on that that song with doja I think he actually sounds a little bit better to me on that, probably because he's opposite Doja and has to bring it a little bit more. Right, know? and also, that's a trap beat, and that's yeah. a song about him stealing someone's girl, right. and Doja <laughs> playing off that. So it's just lighter and more fun by default, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, Louis Bell is all over this, producing and, and co-writing. Uh, he, that's been his signature collaborator for several albums now, and Louis Bell largely became a super producer, an on-in-demand producer, on the back of his work with Post Malone. So he's working with the same people, but I would say that on a song like I Cannot Be with Gunna, that's an example of, I think, Louis Bell kind of elevating a song where Post Malone's kind of just doing his thing like mm-hmm. he always does, but the beat itself is just a bit more inviting, and, and totally. the Gunna feature fits it really well, Free Gunna, where... I think if he was working with someone else, it probably would have just sounded like a boring ass Post Malone song. But I think that's what I said before in the beginning. I think Louis Bell, even though he's always been there, he seems like a bit of a saving grace on this record where I liked listening to this one more than Hollywood's Bleeding. Not that I like either album, but like I just think the production, at least in fits and starts, there's just at least some more interesting things going on. Like, like on Lemon Tree, like... Yeah, Post Malone throwing in like country twang, like out of left field all of a sudden. But I don't know; it kind of fits because of the production. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I I don't really have a lot more to say with about this, only because like it, listening to it, I just kind of had like the oh, this sounds a lot like what we've heard. Um, and I I I think this is just kind of the lane that he wants to 
stay in for now. It's been very profitable for him, and it's worked. But I do hope that we get some some more fun tracks from him moving forward. Yeah, something to watch, too. If you show check the Spotify Top 50 U.S. chart or the global chart as well, you'll see that Post Malone isn't, like, dominating uh, the top 20 spots the way, like, Harry Styles was or Bad Bunny was. Yeah. It's still Harry and Bad Bunny largely, right? So I'm curious to see just how popular this album will be. Like, we're going to see the first week sales go down because last time around, the old bundling rules inflated the total. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, so, I'm sure the Doja song will be a huge hit, but I'm curious to see what other songs are a huge hit too. Because as we said, the Weekend song did not blow up to the extent you would have expected after the way Hollywood's Bleeding went. So I'm, I'm just uh, a bit curious to see uh, how, how things go, or maybe there's a, a bit of people wanting wanting something else who can say so something to watch well uh drop us your thoughts on post malone and check out our nostalgia best of 2022 playlist we're going to talk about hacks now which just wrapped up its second season on hbo uh and man what a delight this show just continues to be uh it's probably one of the best functioning best run and best written comedies out there right now. Not that that's saying a lot for the state of comedies, but uh, I think there's something to be said about a 30 minute show that just is as tight and well thought out and heartfelt as this show. Um, And I think really kind of keeps you on edge teetering between like the, the, you know, in their relationship, the will they won't they of their like, you know, actually like, true feelings towards each other so i i just i love the second season i'm assuming you did as well because I, I think this show is kind of hard to deny at this point yes i liked it a lot and i also really appreciated that the creators uh was it uh lucia in yellow paul w downs and jen statsky mm-hmm. they were not afraid to change up what hacks does and how hacks works as a show it might seem simple but they really kind of switched up the whole energy of the show by sending Deborah and Ava on the road, leaving Vegas behind, separating them from the other uh, characters in the ensemble, but really just kind of adding new dynamics and, and a new framing device to this Deborah-Ava relationship. I thought that was a really nice change to like kind of get ahead of perhaps something getting stale. They, they just didn't run it back, which I thought was really uh, nice. And... I think the emotional and comedic stakes that have been built up from the start of season one just continue to uh, get uh, enriched. And I, I I think it's a really great show. It's not the funniest show on TV, but it is a really funny show. And uh, I think Gene Smart as Deborah is very credible and believable as like a famous legendary comedian, you know, like I I think everything really works and uh, there's like like there's just so much buy-in from the cast but also like from the audience like when you watch the show like everything just works and makes sense and it's just a real fun hang and it's also only four hours the whole season like it doesn't overstay its welcome either mm-hmm. yeah no i completely agree uh, i loved going on the road and then kind of coming back for the end of the season um but i think what that highlighted more than anything and what this season did so well that I didn't fully expect they kind of danced around this aspect in season one at times is Deborah as a mother and like how like her mothering nurturing side kind of comes out even though she still has this very hardened self-centered aspect to her and 
I really loved when um, Marcus, who's kind of sidelined in the first couple of episodes, you know, only kind of popping in to see his spiral in a sense as he's dealing with a breakup, dealing with Deborah not being in LA. And so he's, and he wasn't uh, picked to be the road manager and kind of looking at like, what is my role right now? Like who, who, who should, who do I, do I need to be there for? And that moment when Deborah like asked him to like come on the road with her, you kind of like see that like softer side of Deborah. And I think that's like, those were the moments that really stood out to me this season when Ava's dad's ashes get thrown out by that crazy road manager who was yeah. just like a Lori Metcalf. Yeah. What an amazing, what an amazing, uh, a couple episode run for her in this. But, um, I, I just really like was living for those like softer moments that I think are sprinkled together with Deborah being just ridiculous and this like, you know, self-centered hardened LA comedian who loves to litigate and is going to take you for everything you're worth and is, is going to forgive you, but isn't going to not sue you. And it's just like a really right. fun juxtaposition of the character. I think totally. Yeah. When, uh, when Marcus gets to go on the bus, I think you just have one of the best quick scenes of the of the whole series where they're playing charades and yeah. Marcus and Deborah just absolutely <laughs> destroy because uh or not charades, whatever whatever they're playing. They, they called it like famous or something like that. Right. Where where they're still a celebrity. That's what it was. Yeah, they just have such a uh bond and history together that Marcus can give these very specific hints that only Deborah would get and they just mm-hmm. get every question right. It's really funny. Uh yeah, I think I think that's like if there's a criticism of the series, it's just that this season when everyone goes on the road and people get left behind, that means like Marcus's like subplot. It's like not like it's just not as compelling, I think, as Deborah and Ava. I think for me because I just like have so much confidence in Marcus as a character, like bouncing back because he's like such a su- uh, successful, put together man. Yeah, so confident. Like, like, I know it's going to work out, but I'm like, all right, let's, let's just get past this because it's going to work out, you know? Yeah. Um, how do you feel about the, the, the other key, like, subplot away from the road, which would be uh, uh, Jimmy, Paul W. Downs, of course, the, a- the agent of Ava and Deborah, and his uh, on-again, off-again professional relationship with Kayla, the uh, oblivious, incompetent uh, assistant who is also the daughter of Jimmy's boss. Kayla, played by uh, Megan Stalter, is my my favorite like funny aspect of the show. Her ridiculousness is just like always just laugh out loud funny to me, um, and I I love their their back and forth. You know, Paul W. Downs plays the straight man so well with her, and really just allows her to be so ridiculous. But I actually really liked Jimmy's whole arc in the season. You know, kind of exploring this like uh, culture among agents in hollywood and um you know how he feels like he doesn't fit into this and he takes a stand you know and it, it kind of goes from him having to like trying to take a stand against kayla during the season to like befriending her or at least finding some like working relationship with her and kayla also kind of playing ball with him a little bit to them be like teaming up by the end which i thought was you know a, a really fun development and I, I didn't check to see if we're getting a hack season three. I assume they're going to re-up this. Not yet renewed at this time. Certainly rooting for it, um, you know, given that new management is at the head of Warner Discovery now. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's a bit less clear than it would have been if this was, you know, last year. But 
I'd have to think that the show isn't like super expensive and it won a writing Emmy uh, yeah. last year and I have a smart one as well. So Emmy love helps propel renewal. So you have to imagine season three is coming back, but I would very much anticipate it too, because I think we're in an awesome place. As you said, kind of bringing all the characters together, Jimmy and Kayla brought directly into the fold with, uh, with Deborah in terms of their business. I thought Ming Na Wen was very enjoyable as a as a rival uh, agent, yeah. uh, for sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, too. Like, there's there's just like fun fun little set pieces that just like really work. Like I thought, like when they go to the UFC fight in the beginning, that's really mm-hmm. great. Episode four when they're on the the gay cruise, but it's yes. not, not what Deborah thinks. It's a lesbian cruise. And, <laughs> you know, I think there's that's a great example of the show's writing strengths, where I think there's a really meaningful but realistic conversation between two very different people about like sexuality. You know, when when Ava and uh, Deborah kind of talk about that, not super long, not super serious, not Deborah's point of view either, but it's like it feels like a real conversation too. And I mean, of course, and there's also tons of room for great comedy. And I think when you watch uh, Deborah really bomb when she does the set on the cruise, and it's like the cringiest thing ever for how she's uh why she's bombing. It's like yeah, I think everything's just like super well conceived, you know. And then like the ups and downs, every you just I think you just really buy into it. And like Ava is constantly having ups and downs, but Hannah Einbinder does such a good job of holding her own against you know a t- television legend like Gene Smart that it's just a really tight show. I'd be very curious to see what the potential change up for season three would be because you know season two we went on the road and now we have the characters closer together but it seems like deborah and ava are truly going to be apart at the start of a season three right so what kind of new dynamic does that entail fun to think about yeah you know i i i definitely hope we get a another season because i i would love to see how they bring them back together eventually you know i i I could see something where the show ava's working on maybe um, Deb ends up doing like a guest spot for or something like that or something along those lines. But uh, I just really love their relationship. And I think that's probably kind of going back to my point at the beginning, the way that uh, Einbinder and Smart just uh, make these characters feel so real. You talked about the ups and downs that they have um, and their uh, working dynamic um, on screen is just really uh, emotional. You know, like at the end when, uh, Deborah tells Ava that she has to, you know, she says she's firing her. She has to move on to her own thing, kind of spread her own wings. Um, I, I really like felt sad that they weren't going to be together. And I think Einbinder plays that really well, especially after you see in the episode before the difficulties in the relationship with her own mom. So um, it, it's a really, it's a really wonderful show. It operates on so many different levels uh, really, really well. And you, you do get these like fun guest spots from time to time that really like, stand out and just make it really uh really a pleasure so if you haven't checked out hacks if you don't if you aren't up on it like dave said it's an eight hour commitment at this point um and you can really i think get a lot out of it so hoping for a season three real quick i just say uh i really enjoyed martha kelly as the hr person with jimmy we just saw her in euphoria just great casting really funny and also on the bus, I thought Kiki had one of the best moments of comedy where uh, I forget which character asks her if she likes Memphis music because they're going to Memphis. And they're like, oh, Elvis? And she's like, no, 
Young Dolph, NLE Choppa, 3-6 Mafia, and just lists all the Memphis rappers. I thought that was uh, funny funny writing, funny joke. But yeah, definitely watch Axe. It's, it's really good. Let's move on to Under the Banner of, of Heaven, which we talked about the premiere a few weeks back. Now we got the full season. Andrew Garfield starring in this uh, John Krakauer adaptation. And uh, after seeing all seven episodes, Dave, do you feel like this show lived up to the the hype with Garfield at the helm? I mean, I feel like I was pretty excited for this. Yeah, I think it did. I, I quite enjoyed the series. It's not the funnest hang at times, but I think we knew that going in when you watch a show that opens with the grisly murder of a young mother and newborn child like i thought that was that was pretty obvious right this isn't going to be super fun uh whodunit mystery solver you know it's not like that i think it's a really intelligent miniseries though and i haven't read the crack tower book but his reputation precedes it itself and it just it's a really i think intelligent examination of a very specific world which would be this the very insular community and yet problematic community that was is the, the the Mormon faith and the proximity that traditional Church of Latter-day Saints members have to more fundamentalist Mormons. And it's been very interesting, I think, to read a lot of thoughts and opinions that people that are in or used to be in those worlds themselves have shared about watching the show and the things that they thought the show did very well and how close to home it might be hitting. I think like culturally, I think it's, it's very uh, interesting in that regard, but just as, as a mini series, as a uh, true crime, in a sense, mini series, I think it's also just very compelling. It's not necessarily surprising. I don't think, I think you can kind of see where it's going, but it, it's well acted and, and looks amazing. So it, um, you know, t- tough to poke any holes in it. You know, I, I thought at Garfield, as we said in the beginning, very well cast as someone who's going to be having a crisis of personal faith while going through this professional journey. Like he, he, Garfield definitely lived up to it. And of course, Gil Birmingham is such an awesome foil for him to play off of as they play two very different characters. Yeah, I agree. I really love their dynamic. And Garfield, uh, you know, for as much as he, we, I, I, as I guess I'll speak for myself. I love to see him doing like the the goofy stuff sometimes, getting to be outlandish. You know, it's wonderful to see him back as being Peter Parker and being a little bit more lighthearted. He really can play this um, heavy, like contemplative character so well. And like, I, I can't believe this man doesn't have like more like stress lines in his forehead because he was stressed throughout this thing, man. Like, uh, like the whole time, just trying to figure out this this murder, dealing with all the different dynamics from this like crazy fundamentalist family and all the brothers there to the higher ups in the uh, LDS church who were pressuring him. Um, and then obviously uh, the, the political aspect with the, the police and the mayor and all that, it was just really, I think really well done and, and weaved together really well. And uh, I think, there's a lot of really strong performances in this um, from some well-established actors as well as some up-and-coming actors. I think one of the criticisms I would have that they did better with as the season went on, we talked about this in the preview, was going back to the, um, like, older religious uh, history. Joseph Smith 
uh, Brigham Young flashbacks, like the, the history and genesis of Mormons, basically. Yeah, that that didn't really work for me throughout the series. I think they could have just kind of talked about it, like the way that they do more and more as the season goes on. There's less and less flashbacks, but that was probably the one thing that I just did not jive with very much yeah. in the. And I actually found it a bit confusing at times as well. So that would be my one criticism. But I think everything else worked pretty well. Um, any performances that really stood out to you besides Garfield? Yeah, and we talked about this in the beginning, and I think his best moments are in the beginning, but uh, Alan Lafferty, uh, performed by uh, Billy Howley, really stood out to me amongst a cast of a lot of big names just because I was just really struck with his performance, and it reminded me a lot of Michael Shannon in a really good way. I, I enjoyed him. You get less of Billy Howley towards the end as Pyrie and uh, Taba, you know, go on their go on their journey to solve this crime, and uh, mm-hmm. Alan's just kind of in the in the cell for the most part, you know. But I thought his present day scenes, I thought Hallie's performance was really good. Um, but then Wyatt Russell, who I think everyone likes and has been well regarded for some time, yeah, he was really well cast as fucking zealot fanatic type. You know, it's very believable. Um, yeah. How do you feel about Sam Worthington as Ron Lafferty, who we haven't seen him in like super significant noteworthy roles in a little bit now, but, uh, you know, going up against someone like Wyatt Russell and Garfield and Daisy Edgar Jones and Gil Birmingham, definitely, I think, more celebrated actors these days. How do you feel about Worthington? Well, Worthington's been on the mind a little bit before this with Avatar coming back so i was like huh. mm-hmm. you know it's nice to see him getting a, jake a, a look here yes um i i think he plays it pretty well it, it's hard because i think <laughs> he is playing this kind of like more calculated person that comes unraveled the more and more that you see and obviously i think all the brothers become a little bit more unraveled but why russell pretty much from like episode two you can tell is like a little bit off and yeah. um rory culkin Oh, yeah. uh, just kind of goes off the hinges pretty quickly as soon as Wyatt Russell goes down that path as well. And so you see some of these people kind of just getting to go absolutely ham on screen, but Worthington being a little bit more removed, kind of the, the scorned brother, uh, having a wife who maybe feels a little bit uh, separated from the, the full-on craziness of the family, at least in the beginning of the story, he's a little bit more down the middle and obviously then you get like the scene in the jail where after Wyatt Russell gets arrested and you know he's he manipulates him into taking on the head of the family role and picking up the cross or however they put it and and that's when you kind of start to see like that crazy look in his eyes I think Worthington plays that turn pretty well Mm -hmm. um did you did you like his performance though yeah I think they they put in the time to set up Ron's turn uh, that, that that it's believable and that it makes sense. I think if if it was a bit more rushed, I think it might have been a bit abrasive. And uh, uh, Worthington's maybe lack of nuance as a performer at times might have been exposed a little bit more. But uh, he uh, he fit in well. You know, I think uh, him when he still has all his marbles in the flashback scenes when like the family's all happy and things are going good. It's like really convincing as the put together older brother the most successful of the bunch you know all that all that works i also thought that like, in a recurring role uh christopher heyerdahl as the patriarch lafferty amen is like really really good as this 
completely fucked up sexist man, you know? Um, yeah. But in general, I think, and you mentioned Rory Culkin as well, and I, I think nice, nice supporting role. Um, this whole Lafferty group, which is, I think, I think this, you have to really buy in and this has to like work, I think, for the series to work because uh, at the end of the day, you're portraying like these zealots, these really fucked up delusional people that are is your window into this really messed up world and if those performances are like hokey or caricatures or something then this the show's message just won't hit with as much uh, sincerity and seriousness as it should but thankfully these performances were up to snuff so it all works um and they do a really good job too with the writing i think of tabba's uh uh role in this as a native man a non-mormon man and just how he fits in and around these characters and also exposing some blatant racism from some of these characters too and that that was common in this world like i think they do a great job you know i was thankful that daisy edgar jones actually got a bit more to do as the series went on i was a bit skeptical of seeing that in the beginning where she's basically dead and in some flashbacks as the earnest wife character you know she actually gets a a few scenes towards the end where she gets to you know act yeah definitely um uh, i agree i think i wish we got a little bit more daisy edgar jones in this but i can i'm glad she continues to be in good stuff it's a good good sign for her and you you mentioned um bill uh gil birmingham um as detective bill tabba and yeah that that moment i think it's like episode four maybe it's three or four when um Garfield's uh, character, uh, Detective Pierre, uh, tells the the news that he believes that it is fundamentalist uh, LDS people who are, were connected with this. And uh, Tabba comes in and just tells him how proud he is. And I just thought that was like such a, a nice moment between them. It really like builds their relationship. And there's a lot of sweet moments between them. You really believe in their their bond. Um, but there's just so many little moments like that that I think are so thoughtfully done, like um, when they're talking to the, the Lowe's um, and Tabba yep. is like, so you just told a woman who was being abused to just try harder. And then he's like, you you don't talk to my wife in this household that way. I am the, the cross bearer. And I just is like, and he just kind of like steps back is like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, but yeah, I think it's just a really like Utah still has child protective services. Right. It's, it's honestly the like, he is like the uh, audience avatar in a sense in this, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, I think Garfield is too with the emotional weight. Um, but I, I really thought that I thought that was really done. Well, you talked about the writing. I think the one thing that the rating did really impressively in, in kind of exposing how just like horrible some of these beliefs and, and practices are is you start, the series with this gruesome murder of a child and that kind of looms over the whole show and somehow the more that they go into these fundamentalist ideas that are rooted in some really uh harmful i guess i'll put it that way, harmful ideas um mm-hmm. you know so talking about like child brides and having sister yeah. wives things like that it's just uh it's a, it's amazing that they were able to take you from a child murder that's that gruesome and somehow still make your stomach turn further and further as they yeah. expose more and more of the case. Just really well done. And I think it probably also helps that it comes from a uh, well-known writer like Krakauer, who you just know. Uh, right. I haven't read the book, but you know that this is a, 
well-written book. Well, and a lot of credit is due to Dustin Lance Black for creating this series and adapting yes. the Krakauer book because Black is also coming from the Mormon world as a former LDS himself. And he he knows what he's, what he's talking about. He's seen a lot of this up close as a gay man who was uh, driven to suicidal thoughts during his time in the church. And I, I really like how the show uh, shows you the negatives of both sides. It does a good job of separating that they're, you know, just Mormon people that just happen to be a bit more conservative, which is totally fine, more or less. And there's also these fucked up fundamentalist types that are definitely fringe and, and viewed that way. But they're not as far removed as people like to think they are. They certainly weren't in the past. And there's just a lot of custom and beliefs about things like gender roles and tradition. And, and of course, more obvious things like race that and sexual orientation that are just uh, not really tolerable. And I think it the show handles everything in a really good way because it, it, I think it really builds the things. And, and the way you have Pyrie and Taba representing two very different figures in this world uh, really take you through anything in a meaningful way. I saw some fun theorizing about pe- uh, on Twitter uh, from people after the show ended. Do you think that uh, that Jeb is going to like stick it out for his kids because his wife's clearly like still in it and she basically threatens to leave him for another devout man if he was to not really be Mormon anymore. So what do you think? Do you think Jeb sticks it out or does, or can he just not do it anymore? Oh, that's yeah, tough, that's right? Tough. Yeah. Uh, Important to know, Jeb is not a re- is, is a is a fictional character for the sake of sake of the series was the Lafferty's are real so it's yeah. completely fictional but yeah do, do you think Jeb would <laughs> stick it out you know I, I think based on the fact that he like postponed the baptism and all that I think he was already like kind of questioning his faith within LDS oh so. oh he's questioned it. he yeah. doesn't believe it anymore we know that but right. will he like suck I, it up for the sake of his marriage and his and his kids yeah I mean yeah I th- I think that that is the one thing throughout the show is that he really does love his family. And so um, I think he probably would, but I think he would definitely like put himself at an, uh, an arm's length, so to speak, or as much of a, of a distance as he can and still be in the community because, uh, like you said, he is questioned and he's, he's done. <laughs> so I, I think so. What do you think, though? Yeah, I think so. You know, it's, it's, it's the 80s when this is taking place. So I feel like it's... It's not as easy to the fate or to, to to remove yourself and still keep those connections, probably. So, yeah, I think he'll probably stick it out with his fingers crossed, basically. But brutal. Uh, uh, yeah, I think I think the show does a good job that it's actually interesting thought experiment for a completely fictional character thrust into a otherwise a historical you know fiction show. So or historical yeah. adaptation, you know. It's uh, probably worth noting that Garfield has said that he's going to take a break from performing for a while. So I, I don't I don't know if he had anything else that was planning to come out. But I think this is the last time we're probably going to see him for a little bit. Um, but I, I mean, what a run he's been on here to uh, to kind of take a little break off of. You know, I think people are definitely going to be wanting him to take a lot of roles, which is great. Um, just seeing here if he has any movies coming out. Doesn't there's nothing currently in, uh, in production, so it does look like he can. He's set up to definitely take off as much time as he wants. Now, whether that means he takes off just a year or a few years, like 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 Michael Fassbender did, you know, who who can say? But uh, he 
he's definitely earned it because I think he's had an awesome past few years between this and his movie roles. A hundred percent. So good, good for him. Take all the time you need. We'll gladly welcome you when you come back. But uh, check out Under the Banner of Heaven. I think a really nice addition to the Hulu library. Um, but we're going to finish up now. Talking about The Boys. Season 3. Um, Back Dave, in town. Give me your like quick feelings on the first two seasons of The Boys. Yes, I think The Boys on Amazon Prime video is very enjoyable because it's a not necessarily nuanced, but very obvious and enjoyable satire of superheroes and superhero culture, which is so dominating in today's pop culture landscape. And it's really fun to see all of that lampooned in such a manner that they do it on The Boys. I think The Boys also brings a lot of kind of modern like societal comment into things. The comic adaptation was more reflective of the Bush years, the boys on Amazon is obviously grounded in the Trump uh, sensibilities of the world and just our modern times in general. So it does a really good job of bringing superhero comment, societal comment, and also really visceral R-rated uh, action, more adult fare at the very least, right? So it's a really good job of world building, I have to say, but it makes you think, I think, a lot more than really any other superhero stuff does so for for that i'm just willing to give it more rope when like you know it might uh spin its wheels here and there just because it's at least trying to do something a bit different than everything else yeah you know i think it's a bit reductive to say it's like a grittier look at like the su- like superhero culture it definitely um explores aspects of um what it would be like to have superheroes in real life uh, that I don't think many people actually consider when they, yeah. you know, put themselves into these Marvel or DC worlds. And DC is, uh, you know, leaned more into the, the gritty aspect of, of the underbelly of those worlds. But I mean, the way that this explores um, like sexuality within superheroes, the way it explores uh, what their powers could do to just average people on the street and the way that these powers would corrupt someone psychologically um, and impact someone psychologically are just really, really well done. And of course, you have some awesome performances led by uh, Anthony Starr as Homelander, who is just oh, yeah. like, um, as Homelander is just perfectly cast and so maniacal and so hateable, but also like, kind of entrancing <laughs> when he's on screen you just he, he's he's just someone that you just can't take your eyes off of even when he's in the background he's just always looming and i think that's the thing the show has done so well in setting him up as a character is he just hangs over every aspect yeah. of this show and so season three starts and he's had a bit of a fall from grace um, his relationship with Stormfront, obviously, <laughs> who was outed as a, a Nazi. Um, literal Nazi from literal the 40s. Nazi. Yeah. Um, is is uh, a huge hit to his, um, his, his scores. Celebrity. His yeah, ratings. His, his celebrity scores. Um, <laughs> but it, it sets him up, like you talked about, that like Trump real-world-based political atmosphere to have this incredible turn in the second episode after Stormfront suicide that I think sets up uh, the the true conflict for the rest of this season where Homelander is just who has been 
kind of muzzled by having to or this desire to be popular and to be liked and to be what he feels like he has to be as a celebrity now just being like, fuck it, I'm just going to be who I am and people love it anyway. So I'm just going to be as the awful, shitty, you know, superhuman I am. And that is just completely terrifying. And actually, as I talk about it, you even get like a little sense of like anxiety because there's so many characters on the show that you like and you want to see succeed and you want to you're really sucked into the story and it just feels like I have no idea where this is going to go this season. And so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm all in on season three of The Boys. What do you think of these first three uh, episodes? Yeah, I think, as you said, that ending episode two monologue from Homelander, where, and it's an epiphany for his character, as you said, he realizes yeah. that he can just play into the rhetoric and the dog whistles that he would like to do anyway and find his audience playing to his base they literally say it from uh at what like it, it it's scary to see that kind of representation of society and celebrity uh, on the show but it also makes so much sense for where we've been with this character to this point and the really frustrating and but but believable and and sensical portrayal of like corporatism in terms of how Vought operates and what make drives their decisions it all is so familiar and makes so much sense, but like the, it may, I think it just makes the world feel so much more real. You know, like, like you said, uh, the show in season one had a great, great, great hook where like, what if the Flash ran through someone and they fucking splattered and died? It's like mm-hmm. something you think about like that's like, wow. And like, we're, I think we're so much more past that, even if we're not leaving all that behind either, where because we're talking about like, top level like more societal things and representing real world phenomenon via the boys mm-hmm. the fact that it's also like satirizing superhero culture is like so much besides the point now you know yeah. so i'm very much looking forward to seeing the rest of the season i think the the, the question or, or i guess the perhaps lack of true conflict that i i brought up when we talked about season two is that once like homelander goes like full like full villain full off tilt the show has to move into its end game so in that regard i wonder how much like true stakes we will have with the boys until we get to that point because they can't kill homelander until they're ending the show you know hmm. so how much more do we have of the, the boys themselves staying out of homelander's grasp and going back and forth you know i i'd like that they at least had butcher and homelander meet uh in this premiere like face to face sit down at the table and that's when uh was it homelander gives butcher the temp v files the three of them and it's like they at least put it out in the open that like homelander at any moment could just slaughter everyone and he at least is aware that he doesn't want to do that at this time but that being said like what else can we see like happen from a plot perspective that'll feel meaningful? Like I think Huey does a good job too of saying like everything feels hopeless and I can't do it the right way. Like it's all rigged. You know, this senator I've been working for turns out she's in on it too and is a soup and connected to the vault, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. So we have to go back to what we were doing. It's like, okay, they're gonna go back to what they were doing in season one. But we have no reason to expect it to be any more successful because the boys is a successful show and thus Homelander is going to keep being Homelander. Right. So yeah. that, that's my one kind of hang up. That's like in the back of my head. 
but I also don't mind it that much because it's just such a fun world to be in. And Homelander really just makes some real anxious feelings in you when you watch him because it's just such a fully realized villain, but also yeah. multifaceted. Yeah. So my one thought would be that if they wanted to go the route of killing Homelander, um, the way that they could keep the show going would be kind of setting him up as like the Trump character who is going to like awaken this like these bad actors throughout the country and then have right. it kind of like these other people like take up this persona and like how they're going to try to like combat that if the, they would really be leaning into like current political discourse right. which i don't know if the show wants to fully go there but they did they did introduce nazi idealism into like the you know right. a person who embodies the united states in the show so it's right. it's I not mean, shying away from current there's obvious charlottesville iconography with the yes. stormfront supporters that we see in season three on like video footage so they don't really run away from anything and they don't really care if, if the parallels are super obvious either because as long as it I think, makes sense for the world building in the show then it's all good yeah yeah and no, i think i think that's right you know what what does homelander running off to chill in florida look like though on hmm. the show like what what is that actually you know, I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think it would. I think it would have to be like Homelander is, uh, you know, whatever this weapon that they're finding actually works on him, and that he still is like a figure, but not as powerful in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just Nerf don't him. know what's gonna come. But I, I am really fascinated to see the flashbacks. You know, we we see a flashback to um, Mallory there. Uh, what's yeah, her name? Uh, Nicaragua, like, like yeah. Contra stuff. I think it was. And, um, you know, you get young uh, Vought there, uh, Edgar from Vought, who's overseeing this, these initial, like, soups in the army. Uh, yes. And Payback. just, like, the, the, the debacle that that was was so well done and gruesome, which, you know, I think the show really does a good job of showing the potential gruesome side of, of this re- world as sort of reality. Um, and I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing a little bit more from that. I think the um soldier boy <laughs> just which also just makes me laugh every time they talk about it because it's hard to not just think of soldier boy uh yeah you know you. That. <laughs> um but uh i i think that's really fascinating and like an interesting um aspect to the show is looking backwards a little bit more so i'm hoping to get some something out of that and i also think they do a really good job of setting up um the position that uh, Starlight is in, you know, yeah. like uh, I, I really feel for her, and I think um, Aaron Moriarty does a really great job playing her, and uh, I, I'm I'm very fascinated to see where this like on-screen romance that she's leaning into at the end of episode three is going to go with Homelander. It mm-hmm. feels, you know, like a like really tiptoeing a, a fine line. I'm, uh, I'm very worried for her at this point. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think down the line, too, they're doing a good job of logically kind of setting up the ticking time bomb that is uh, Homelander's son via yeah. Butcher's wife. Uh, wouldn't be shocked to see him kind of become like an Anakin Skywalker falls to Darth Vader type thing. You know, Kylo Ren, like maybe maybe that is where, where we go, where uh he brief, briefly breaks like super bad and becomes an antagonist, you know? Hmm. Not sure. Uh, I also, I really enjoy Victoria Newman so far, who we got a bit in season two 
as a, she's the congresswoman who's in on it with Vought. Uh, yeah. The whole Vought. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, adopting uh, stuff from uh, Super Soup Soup's kids. Another another awesome, I think, world-building moment that makes sense for the boys. What if there were super-powered kids that killed their parents before they had any control? What happens to them? It's like, wow, yeah, I never thought about it like that. Yep. Um, <laughs> along those lines, really excited to see that Vought spinoff series about superhero college kids, which is actually in production right now after a long development. Um, there's just so much to play in with this world, even if I, I, I might have fears about the main conflict growing stagnant. There's just so much, I think, going on in the world, and all the performances are really enjoyable that I, I do hope they just kind of just run this out for a while because it's just really fun to be with these characters. Yeah, definitely. You know, just one one aspect I wanted to touch on that I'm having a really, really tough time with pretty much every time they're on screen this season is uh, the Aquaman um, uh, person. The deep. Yeah, the, the Deep. Um, obviously, getting uh, Chase Crawford back is nice. I think he's a, he's a talented actor, but his character, uh, obviously problematic from uh, things from earlier seasons, you know, the sexual assault of uh, Starlight in season one. Um, but him having to eat Timothy in episode three was literally, I, I literally had to skip through the scene, dude. Like, it was so hard CG, to watch. CG octopus. <laughs> yes. And I, I, yeah, obviously I'm being a big, a big baby with that, but it was just so heartbreaking to see him have to eat his friend um yeah just really really devastating <laughs> was, uh i i hope we we get timothy back in some way but i highly doubt it um that mm-hmm. was a brutal scene yeah oh, i'm curious to see where they take a train because a train feels a bit stagnant where it's like he medically like can't really be his old self in terms of like being the flash mm-hmm. and personally culturally he's basically called out by those who know him that's like you're not really putting on for the black community. You're just a self-centered person. So what's your deal, bro? Yeah, and that's kind of where we're left with. So TBD there, I suppose. Um, I think the other, the other one, the one through line that I didn't really care for early on was like Frenchie's side plots where he like gets up to like random mischief away from the rest of the boys. It's like, I feel like I don't necessarily need this. Yeah. I don't mind Kimiko per se, but like, when Frenchie's like off, like with his other acquaintances, and like getting roughed up by like European mobsters or something, it's like, what's the point of this? Like, yeah, I agree. Uh, I I don't know where that's going, but uh, don't really want more of that. We'll see. Um, yeah, man, this the show is great, and I hope people watch it. And if you like superheroes at all, I think uh, I think it's worth the watch, at least for the the thoughtfulness of it, because it definitely makes you consider things that you haven't before. So. Any last thoughts? Or are you ready to wrap it up for this week? Yeah. Let's wrap it up. What do we got for next week, Dave? The Jurassic World. Dominion. Jurassic World 3. One of the biggest movies of the year, almost assuredly. So we'll get that. Colin Trevorrow back. The end of Barry Season 3. And the start of Miss Marvel. Marvel, Disney Plus, Miss Marvel, and Obi-Wan. The same day for a few weeks. Yeah. And then also uh, on Apple, the start of For All Mankind, season three, one of the breakout Apple series in its second season. Hell yeah. Love that show. Uh, Definitely catch up on those things before we talk about them next week. If you haven't had the chance, and give us that follow, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. 
We'll catch you next week. Yeah.